So please welcome, without further ado, one of my favorite professors from Wisconsin College, Dr. Allison Phillips. Okay, I'll try to project my voice. Thank you. Daniel is actually one of my students and advisees, so um, he knows me well. He's been in my office a lot, talking about future, the future, his life. So, um, and I actually have a lot of familiar faces. They came back. They have had some students in class, and they came back for more. So it must not be too terrible. So, um, so thank you, Daniel. Well, Daniel was one of the first people to invite me to give this talk, and then. Um, Pastor Thompson solidified the details and then further invited me. So thank you for the invitation. Um, okay, so a couple things. Daniel already gave me a little bit about my background, um, but what I want to highlight because it's important when talking about evolution and creation, it's important that I highlight that I grew up in public schools. Okay, so um, my high school was a public school. I went to a large public university, and then I went to UW-Wisconsin, which is a large public university. So my whole academic career, really not in high school so much, but in college and grad school, what I heard about was evolution. And in the public school system, you don't talk about creation much. So it wasn't really until I started working at WLC that I got the opportunity um, in a college classroom setting to really think about creation and evolution and the intersection of these two ideas. So it was the first time I really started to think about how I would talk about these topics with students. It was not something I ever really talked about too much um, before that. I was interested in the subject, um, kind of explored it a little bit in Sunday school, um, but really when the subject came up in um, college and grad school, I kind of kept my head down but my ears open and I didn't really talk about it too much because I didn't really know um, how to defend my beliefs in a public setting where a lot of people were really pro-evolution and anti-Christian. Um, so um, this, uh, this gives me the opportunity to kind of think about how to talk to you guys about it and the way I've organized my talk is to questions, to list some questions. So questions I've had in thinking about this and questions that a lot of my students have had um, asked me in class and maybe just some new questions that I thought of. So I've organized it um, as a list of questions, but certainly if you have questions, you're welcome to ask them as I go along. So I think the best place to always start, for me, when I'm thinking about evolution and creation, um, I always start with in the beginning, right? Because that's where I think that all conversations about creation and evolution should begin. Um, so I'm not going to read all of Genesis 1, but that's where I like to start. Even in my classes at WLC, I get the opportunity to start there as well. So starting in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. I'm going to read the part about plants because I'm a plant biologist. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and years, and let them 
be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So I always like to start with that because that's my basis for all my thoughts about evolution and creation is that I believe in Genesis 1, 1 and I believe er, Genesis 1 and I believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. So just so you know where I'm coming from, um, that's my foundation for this. Um, a couple of notes before I go further. I approach this, con this conversation with you guys and with every lecture that I give in Bio 202 about evolution, I approach it with great humility. Um, I am not an expert. People in my department can talk circles around me about evolution, but um, I have a very basic understanding of evolution. I'm still learning. And so there's gonna be questions that you might have that I can't answer, but you're certainly welcome to ask them. Um, there are no trapdoors under your seats. This isn't survival of the fittest today, so feel free to ask any questions that you have. So now that you know a little bit about me, I would like to know a little bit about you guys. Um, particularly what I'm interested in knowing is, did you grow up in a public school system talking about evolution? Did you grow up in a parochial school system um, where you didn't really talk about evolution? Evolution was a bad word or you just didn't talk about it. So if anybody wants to share um, their background on this, I'm, I'd love to hear from some of you guys. Uh, I, I went to Wells schools pretty much my whole life. My dad's a pastor, so they're already pretty deep in the system already. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I, I had heard evolution and I heard what it was, but it was always very quickly shut down. Nobody really gave it any chance to breathe, really, or we, ne we never really approached it in a very mature and, okay, let's actually kind of sit down and just think about this for a minute. Um, is always, okay, people believe this, but this is what actually happened, so we're just going to ignore what evolution says. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Emily. Bye, 
Okay, excellent. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I've always been in public school systems uh, from day one. Obviously, grew up going to the social school and stuff like that. And the public school system that I, I grew up in a very rural area, so I guess doesn't count as much just because it is like a Christian environment. You know, like you grow up in a small town and everyone's Catholic and has the same beliefs. Um, but when we go over it, when we went over it a couple times in classes, it's pretty quick to the point and p teachers don't say, don't quite, like they don't, don't say don't question it. They don't like go in depth like saying evolution is the right way or not. It's like, this is what the book teaches. This is what we're supposed to teach. Whether you believe it or not, like it's gotta, you know, you gotta teach it, it's public school. But they'd never really shot down, I mean, nobody ever really talked about it, but they were like, not like, oh, this is the only thing you have to believe either. So it was kind of more of like an open thing, but I think they were more pressured into doing it. But I do remember I had a physics teacher that was very into it, and he, there you could feel that he was, he definitely believed in evolution, but you, you couldn't, not public school, you couldn't really do much about whether or not <laughs> he believes anything. All right, good. Well, thank you. Um, the reason I like to ask is because, you, as you can already tell just from three people who spoke up, um, everybody's on a different page when they're coming to this conversation. They've learned different things growing up. They've learned different things. They've had different amounts of exposure at school and at church. And so everybody's on a very different page when it comes to evolution and creation. And so my first question that I want to discuss is what is evolution? Um, and the reason I like to start with this because it's always good to start with definitions. Um, if anybody ever asks you, do you believe in evolution? Never answer that question unless you fire back a question. What are you talking about? What do you mean by evolution? Because evolution means something different to everybody. And so if you say, yes, I believe in evolution, Okay, what kind of evolution are you talking about? Okay, so everybody's on a different page with definitions. So I'm going to start with a very early definition. Um, this is Charles Darwin. He contributed a lot to our, our understanding of evolutionary thought. And an early definition of evolution is that species change over time. And so species can be, we as human beings are a species, right? We um, are a group of organisms, similar organisms that, are, that can interbreed. We have a species, Juglans nigra is a species of black walnut tree, okay? So it's a particular type of tree. Um, so we have all different kinds of species. The common house cat is a species. So we have species changing, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about what kind of changes constitute evolutionary changes. Species changing over time. And time here is not within an individual's lifetime, but it takes multiple generations, many years, for um, evolution to occur. Darwin's early definition of species changing over time has two common themes, unity and diversity. Okay, unity, the idea that we, as one of the most complex organisms on Earth, have something in common with the most simple bacterial cell. Okay, we're made of cells. We have a unity. Every living organism has common features that unify them. But yet we're all very, all the different organisms on Earth are very diverse as well. So there's different features that diversify. So the idea of evolution is that you have some commonality with another organism, but that there are features that diversify. All right. So the problem becomes with definitions is that evolution 
that's a simple definition that a lot of people can agree on. But then you can break evolution down into microevolution and macroevolution and the history, the evolutionary history of the Earth. Where did all these organisms come from? The idea that the Earth is four and a half billion years old. Okay, these are very different concepts. And my understanding of science and my understanding of the Bible is that microevolution and macroevolution are compatible with a literal interpretation of Genesis. And I will say that I believe in evolution because I believe in microevolution and macroevolution. And I think there's really strong scientific support for those two concepts. And again, I don't think that they conflict with what Genesis, a literal interpretation of Genesis. My problem comes, and I'll define those in a little bit too, my problem comes in then thinking about the evolutionary history of the earth, okay? Did, uh, is evolution responsible for every diverse kind of organism on earth, all the different organisms that we have? And if so, it would take a long time for that to happen. That is not compatible with a literal interpretation of Genesis that says that the earth is about 10,000 years old. Okay, so the, that, thir that third concept of evolution isn't really compatible with biblical teachings. And so that's why it's important to define um, what you're talking about, because I believe in some aspects of evolution, but I don't really extrapolate those concepts to four and a half billion years. So we'll come to those terms here in a moment. So. Um, my second question is about what did Charles Darwin contribute to our understanding of evolution? And the reason I think it's important to think about this is because a lot of people pit Christianity and Darwinism, okay? And it's, they're like head to head, that if you believe Darwin, you can't be a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you can't, so if you, these two aren't, they don't mesh. But in actuality, what Darwin presented as a theory of natural selection is spot on, and there's nothing to contradict in the last 200 years that, um, that his theory is not correct. Um, so I just want to give you a little bit of historical background on Charles Darwin so that you can understand um, the perspective of um, his theory. And I want to say that one of the most influential things that I read that really got me thinking about um, creation and evolution is actually a series of articles in the Ford and Christ magazine. Um, I read this before I ever started working at WLC. I had no idea anything about um, WLC at the time. And um, it was an article written by Paul Balke, who was a professor at WLC at the time. He's since retired. And if you've had my class, I, if you've already had to read this, because <laughs> I like this article. But he wrote this article kind of as a way to help explain Darwin Day, because there's a lot of backlash against the Christian community when Darwin Day comes around. And so he wrote this as a way to help explain Darwin Day and where Darwin was coming from, some of the things that Darwin got right and some of the things that Darwin maybe got wrong. And so if you have the time, I mean, obviously not for now, but it's something that if you're interested in this topic and want to keep reading other like-minded people who are Christians and scientists, this is a good article for you. Um, so, in order to understand a little bit about Charles Darwin, it's important to understand kind of what was happening b before Darwin kind of came on the scene. So what was the history of evolutionary thought? And really from Plato's time in 400 BC all the way up to the mid 1700s, not a whole lot changed. There was one theory about evolution and that was what was called scala natura. 
So Scala Natura is this great chain of being. It's been depicted in art and essays, um, but you have this ch these chains, okay? So you have lower forms here with plants and animals and birds and fish, um, man, angels working up to God. And Plato's concept of this was idealism, that there was an, that everything on earth was an imperfect copy of a perfect form. And this was very consistent with biblical teachings that Adam is a perfect copy of God, and then after the fall into sin, he's now an imperfect copy. So that's what, that, that's what Plato was talking about. And so the idea was that every organism on earth is also an imperfect copy of a perfect form. Um, Aristotle wrote about it. Um, we have um, this um, essay on man by Alexander Pope where he talked about this great chain of being, um, talking about, um, oh, vast chain, I'll just read it. Oh, vast chain of being from which God began, natural's ethereal, human, angel, man, beast, bird, fish, insect, what no eye can see, no glass can reach from infinite to thee. From thee to nothing on superior powers were we to press inferior might on ours or in the full creation leave a void where one step broken the great scales destroy. So that's that scala natura, that great scale. From nature's chain, whatever link you strike, tenth or ten thousandth breaks the chain alike. So talking about these rigid types of rocks and really the main concept there is that things were not changing. It was called the fixity of species. God created these creatures, they're an imperfect copy, but they weren't changing, it was rigid, all right? So this was a prevailing thought um, until about the mid-1700s. And Darwin wasn't the first person to change this thinking. There was quite a few other scientists who were starting to rock the boat on this idea and challenge this concept. Um, there was a scientist who was studying, he was the, considered the grandfather of paleontology, he was studying fossils, and he was one of the first to prove extinction. And if things were going extinct, then obviously things were changing. So it kind of challenged the concept that things were static. Um, Lamarckian evolution, um, Lamarck was talking about species changing. So people were starting to consider this concept of evolution. And Darwin had a lot of contemporaries, um, contemporary thought that he was drawing on when he was thinking about this concept of evolution. So this is a young Darwin, he's 22. This is when he set sail on his famous voyage, the HMS Beagle. And um, so D Darwin's father was a physician, uh, but, and he wanted Darwin to be a physician as well, but Darwin had a weak stomach. I was just telling Daniel before this talk that I work on plants for a reason. I would want, not wanna do surgery, especially back then when you had to like bite on a stick while somebody cut off your leg. It just seems gruesome, right? So I, I would be in the camp with Darwin. I wouldn't want to be um, going to med school then. But Darwin was interested in botany and zoology, and he really wanted to be an Anglican pastor, okay? So he wanted to have this little country parish and study natural theology, and he ended up going to um, uh, Christ College in Cambridge to study, to a divinity school, to study what was called natural theology. And the idea of natural theology is looking for divinity in creation. So God gave us the world as one way to know him, nature as one way to know him. Um, and the idea of natural theology is looking for divinity in creation. So that's what Darwin was studying. 
But he had a friend who wanted him to go on this voyage, and this voyage was really um, important in his development of his theories. And just to tell you a little bit about the voyage, voyage so he set sail from England, I'll have a pointer here, and he went around South America here, stopping at lots of places along the way, ended up at the Galapagos, you might have heard of the Galapagos as Dar one of the famous stops on Darwin's voyage, it's off the coast of Ecuador, there's a series of islands there they spent some time at, um, around here to Australia, and then around Africa, back to South America, and then back up to England. And the voyage took five years, as it was supposed to take three, ended up taking five. And during his time on this voyage, um, there was another man on the boat who was supposed to be the ship's naturalist to collect specimens. Um, and slowly, Darwin took over his job as the ship's naturalist. So he had a lot of observations, very good scientist, lots of observations, lots of notes, um, collected specimens along the way. And interestingly, um, Five years on a boat, two books. No, no Twitter, no phones to keep you busy, right? No solitaire, two books. He took the Bible and he took a book called Lyle's Geology. So you can bet they were probably pretty well read, right? If you're on a boat for a long time. So these were really, really influential and it kind of tells you a little bit about Darwin that these are the two books that he took. Um, Lyle's Geology turns out to be, um, was really, fundamental in his um, development of a series of natural selection. It was about how rocks form, and Lyle's geology promoted a concept called uniformitarianism. So if you look at a sheer face of a cliff and you see all these layers, um, Lyle's geology said that these rocks were forming over time and that the process was so slow that we couldn't see it but that they were, these rocks were building up over time. And the old processes are the same as the new, but it's just happening really slow. And if you think about these processes happening slow, what that really means is that the earth has to be really old, right? In order for these rocks to form, it means the earth has to be really old. So that was kind of contradicting what the church was teaching, and it still does. Um, but it was something that was on Darwin's mind as he was seeing these rocks and he was thinking about how things change, rocks change, and he was starting to apply this concept to how um, biological organisms change. So what did Darwin see? Um, you've probably heard about Darwin's tortoises and Darwin's finches maybe. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle, but he was also seeing fossils. So he was seeing rock formations, he was seeing fossils, he saw fossils of this organism called a mylodon, glyptodon. They look kind of cute, but this one's like nine feet tall. And that one's about the size of a small car, so I would not <laughs> want to run into that. Um, but what, what remarkably, what Darwin noticed about the mylodon and the glyptodon is that even though they look pretty different here in these sketches, they're actually quite similar um, fossils. Right? You take this mylodon and you put it on all fours and you give it some armor, it looks pretty similar to the glyptodon. And even more striking, Darwin made the connection between these giant organisms and the modern-day sloth. Okay? And so he was seeing a connection, a unity between these organisms, but also the diversity. Same kind of idea with his tortoises. Okay? These were in the Galapagos, really huge tortoises. Um, and at first they look pretty similar, these are just tortoises, but the more he noticed about them um, and watched them, he noticed what they were eating 
and he noticed stru different structures. So you can see this one has a really long neck, and as it turns out, on the particular island where this one is found, the vegetation's kind of higher up. So these tortoises had to work a little bit to get their food. Um, the tortoises with the shorter necks, you can see the low-lying vegetation, so food was more readily available. And so he noticed the distribution of these organisms. He noticed the unity, but he also noticed the diversity. And then we also have Darwin's finches. Okay, so at first, Darwin almost overlooked the finches, but then he started taking notes about the finches, and just like the tortoises, he noticed unity. These were all finches. But on the different islands, um, with different food availability, he noticed some key differences in their beak shape. So these ones have more parrot-like bills, and they're eating fruit. Um, we have grasping bills that eat more insects, um, probing bills that are able to eat cactuses, and then crushing bills that can crush seeds. So the shape of the bills was pretty indicative of what type of food they were eating. And so, Darwin started to formulate these ideas, and his voyage was just the first part of it. He came back and collected more evidence. But what, this, what he saw in this unity and diversity was that these organisms were adapting to their environment. They had features that allowed them to get the food they needed in the environment that they had, so in the environment that they were in. So what this meant to Darwin was that species were changing. Okay, so this was different than fixity of the species um, that he had been taught. It was kind of, he was hearing these other contemporary scientists talking about species changing, and he started to formulate these ideas that species were changing, and that it was specifically changes that helped them adapt to their environment. So this is the idea of evolution. And so what Darwin went on to do, collect a lot of evidence, um, 20 years he spent gathering evidence about evolution and formulating his theory of natural selection. Um, it, he didn't publish on his theory for 20 years after he returned from his voyage. So he spent a lot of time collecting evidence. And one of the reasons he didn't publish was because he said he felt like he was confessing to a murder. It, was, it, was, it weighed on him so heavily because it really was contrary to what the church was teaching. And that, I mean, that's got to be hard, is that you're collecting evidence as a scientist that directly contradicts something that the church was teaching. And in, the, in those days, there was no separation of church and state, so um, the church was right in the middle of the fray on all these scientific issues. So it was really hard for Darwin um, to publish on this, but eventually he did publish for lots of reasons. You can read the article, but it talks about the death of his daughter and how his friends pushed him to publish, so eventually he did publish um, his research. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get out of here in a moment, the, all this scientific stuff, but I do wanna present a little bit about Darwin's theory of natural selection because understanding his theory helps you to understand that everything that Darwin did is not bad, okay? He has some really foundational theories um, that hold water 200 years later, and his theories are just really spot on. So his theory of natural selection really is, so people were saying, okay, evolution is occurring, species are changing, and the real question was how. We as scientists try to answer that how question. So how does this work? And so he formulated the theory of natural selection as a mechanism for evolutionary change. This is how evolution was occurring.
And I'm not going to get into these details, but I'll try to explain this. I think it'll be easier if I try to explain it going back to the finches. So first of all, the first part of his theory is that there has to be variation, inheritable variation. So um, all these finches, there's variation, right? They have variation in their beak shape. And it has to be inheritable, so they have to be able to pass these traits on to the next generation. Um, the second is that there has to be more birds than there is food. There has to be competition for resources. So only some birds are going to get enough food. All right. And if they have the right kind of beak for the right environment, they're going to get that food. So let's say they're on an island where they have mostly seeds to eat. I'll quit moving. Are you not wanting me to move? Okay. <laughs> uh, let's say they're on an island where they mostly have seeds to eat, okay, and less fruit. So the birds that have the crushing bills are going to be able to get more food, right? If they have the right kind of bill that they can eat those seeds, they're going to get more food. And if they can get more food, they can have more babies. And really, evolution is all about reproduction, what you can pass on to the next generation. Um, this poor bird that has a pear-like bill and can't crush those seeds, he's not going to get as much food, he, she, not going to have as many babies. And so these birds that have the crushing bills are going to be able to have more babies. They're going to pass on their traits to the next generation. All right? If they pass on their traits to the next generation, the next generation, you're going to see more birds with crushing bills. And that's evolution. Species changing. If you have a population of a mixture of beaks, and the next generation, you have a population where you have more of one type of beak than another, that's evolution. All right, that is evolution. That is species changing over time, one generation to the next. Typically, it takes a lot of generations, okay? The problem is, let's say the next year, it's a really wet year, and all of a sudden we have a lot more fruit. Now, the birds that have the parrot-like bills have an advantage. And so they might have more babies. And the next generation, you see more parrot-like bills. That's evolution, OK? These shifts in populations. Now, I just want to point out, I'm still talking about birds being birds, finches being finches. Not big changes, where we're changing from one organism to the next, but birds still being birds. Um, so that's the idea of natural selection. Mother nature is choosing the traits that are advantageous. All right. So what I just described to you, this leads me to my next question, is going back to those definitions. What's the difference between microevolution and macroevolution? What I just described to you is microevolution. And like I said, that's really compatible with what the Bible teaches, right? We're still talking about birds being birds, but we're seeing shifts in populations. We have so much data to support microevolution that there's really it's really hard to deny that that type of evolution is occurring. Right, and I would say most Christians would say, yes, microevolution occurs. There's, there's, no, there's no fundamental problem with saying that. Um, okay, so species change over time. We kind of broadened our definition of evolution in general to talk about multiple generations, um, what kind of changes it will need to be something that can be passed on from one generation to the next. Microevolution, we say, happens below the species level. Finches are still finches. We just have shifts in the features we see within a population of finches. Macroevolution 
Okay, let's go back to the finches. Let's say that we see this shift. We have some um, birds that have parrot-like bills and some birds that have crushing bills. And let's say that their beak cha shape changes the songs that they sing. All right, so just something about the shape of their beak, they sing different songs. And if they sing different songs to attract a mate, let's say the, these two beaks, they no longer have similar mating calls. So they never mate. And if they never mate, or they can never be interested in mating, or they can never have successful babies, they become two different species of bird. All right. Still finches, but two different species of finches because they no longer can intermate. That's macroevolution. Anytime you have the formation of a new species, that's macroevolution. It's still birds being birds, finches being finches, but we have different species. Okay? And the whole idea of a species is you have to be able to intermate to be the same species. So we say macroevolution happens. Um, above the species level because it results in the formation of a new species. There's nothing about macroevolution that's not compatible with the Bible either. The Bible doesn't talk about species. Genesis talks about kinds, right, according to their kind. Um, Noah had different types of animals on the ark, but it never, a species is something that we modern day scientists have defined what is a species. It has nothing to do with the, what the Bible is calling kinds. And so there's nothing that's not compatible, there's nothing about macroevolution that's not compatible with the Bible either. Okay, we're still talking about birds being birds. Um, the problem, any questions so far? I should stop for a minute, yeah. So could you like, did the same thing happen with like bears, like yeah, brown bears, you know, in like the northern United States, and then the really northern, you get polar bears, and they were able to survive up there because they could swim better and had white had white fur. fur, and they blend in, and they're better adapted to their environment. Absolutely, we can talk about it with dogs and wolves, right? Dogs and wolves are very similar. Um, they might have had some key features that allowed them to survive in different environments. You have foxes, and you have the bush dogs, and so yes, all of that is macroevolution. Yeah, absolutely. Other questions? Yeah. I guess I just never really understood that. Uh, I'm assuming that those are all like the same finches, right? Um, Difference, if it's speciation event, they can just no longer intermate. So right. you can have different species. Okay. Yeah. Finches so, is more of a common term, but. My question is how, how can those beaks change with the food that's readily, readily available? The beaks aren't changing with the food that's readily available. This is a really important point. Um, the beaks aren't changing due to the food. It just so happens that there's variation in a population and one type of beak is better for that food type. So those finches with those beaks will live on and then the other ones will die out. Maybe not die out, but they don't have as many babies, and so there, it's a slow change. So the next generation, there's fewer of one type and more of another. Okay. So it's not that they just die out. Um, it's just that there's this subtle shift that you sure. have fewer of one type and more of another. Okay. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense. Okay. 
And we do have extinction events. If the environment changes so drastically that something can't survive, then that can die out, mm -hmm. right? So we do have extinction events. But okay. typically, we're talking about these subtle changes when it comes to microevolution. Even, ma even macroevolution can yeah. be subtle changes mm -hmm. as long as it causes a change in reproductive compatibi compatibility. Right. Okay. Yeah. you can. <laughs> so, there's this idea that, that Darwin observed all these changes. If this is something that happens slowly over time, how does he observe the changes? He's not observing the changes, okay? He's observing fossils and making inferences about unity and diversity. He's observing what we call biogeography. So he's observing different tortoises Ah, I'm going the wrong way. Um, he's observing different tortoises on different islands, and he, he's noticing that they're eating different things. So distribution of animals in space and time. So he's making inferences about how they got to be that way, but he's not observing how they changed. He's seen finches, and he's making inferences. Now, people have gone on to do more research and tracked finches on the Galapagos over many years to try to show that this is what's happening, but he did not observe these changes in multiple generations. But he's making inferences about how it works. And not being a scientist at all, um, is, isn't that part of the scientific method that you're observing changes actually happening? Yes, so typically what happens for a theory is you, you make lots of observations or you do research and you formulate an idea, but for theories to hold water, they have to be backed up by data. So um, if this is something that he formulated a theory and then continued to gather lots and lots of data that would seem to support it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's directly observed. Yeah. Other questions? I should have asked more questions for questions earlier. Yeah. Can you take this book out, or did they know about mutations at that time? No, not a lot. Gregor Mendel didn't really come on the scene until the 1800s when they first started thinking about genes and factors being passed on from one generation to the next. And we didn't really know a lot about DNA until the 1950s. So Darwin knew nothing about genes and mutations. So that's why, you know, that's why he didn't know about how, how so his, his theory was really remarkable because he made some really good inferences that still hold water now that we know about genes, now that we know about mutations. Great questions. Other questions? All right. Um, where was I on my questions? Okay, so microevolution, macroevolution. So going back to um, what you had asked earlier about bears, so that's the idea of speciation. We're still talking about one type of organism, but branching out into more diverse versions of that organism. So here, wolves still being wolves, but we have foxes and bush dogs and whatever. Monkeys still being monkeys, but we have lots of different types of monkeys. Birds still being birds, we have lots of different types of birds. Okay, so that's the idea of macroevolution. So, what happens if we take this concept of evolution, microevolution and macroevolution, and we extrapolate it to a very long time scale? Darwin was thinking about Lyell's geology, 
rocks changing slowly over time? What if we thought about organisms changing over a long time and now all of a sudden we had a really long time to do this? Billions of years. What happens then? If given that much time, then that's where you get this idea that monkeys had time to slowly become humans or whales had time to move to land and become crocodiles and um, birds turned into some other organism, right? And you move far enough back in that time scale and we all came from this primordial soup, that there was this one prokaryotic organism, single-celled organism, bacterial cell of some sort, and then you give enough time and slowly evolution and you have all these different creatures that we see today. That's the idea with the evolutionary history of the Earth. It's trying to explain how you start with one organism and you get to all the other organisms that we have. And if given four and a half billion years, because that's what scientists say it would take to do this, you would come up with all these different organisms that we have now. So that's the idea with an evolutionary history of the Earth, that evolution is the only way to explain all the different organisms that we have. This obviously is not compatible with a literal interpretation of Genesis, that the Earth is only 10,000 um, years old, right? There's not enough time for all these organisms to arise. So microevolution and macroevolution, yes, in 10,000 years, there's a lot that can happen. A lot of going from a kind on the ark to the different types of dogs that we have. I mean, just thinking about dog breeding, we have 300, over 300 different breeds of dogs. I get on my high horse about dogs because I'm not a big dog fan, but 300 different breeds of dogs, right? We didn't start with 300 different breeds of dogs, but we have human, as humans have been interested in different traits of dogs and we've bred for all these different types of dogs. So that's evolution happening. Um, so going from the kinds on the ark to the species that we have now, given 10,000 years, it might be possible. But, that, but going out three and a half billion years doesn't really fit with Genesis. So that's, what, that's where evolutionary scientists are coming from. They're explaining everything by natural causes, um, evolutionary mechanisms to explain how all these organisms came to be, as opposed to the idea of creation that explains these different kinds that are present as original creation, that God created birds according to their kind and animals according to their kind and plants according to their kind. I should probably ask if there's questions about that because that's kind of a big, a big topic before I move on. He hinted at this. He did. It was in his later writing, so he formulated the theory of um, natural selection, spent a lot of time um, supporting that theory, the concepts of micro and macroevolution, but he did suggest that if given enough time, then all these different organisms could form. So, yeah. Did he ever fall out of his faith, like in? Yes. Yeah, so actually, actually um, I'll, I'll come back to you, Emily, I know you have your hand up. Um, so that was my next question, was Charles Darwin wrong? Okay, so yes and no. His theory of natural selection was spot on. It holds water 200 years later. His theory, his theories about microevolution and macroevolution, um, 
I would say, no, he's not wrong. Was he wrong? Where did he go wrong? He did. He left the faith. So he used to go to church. He was going to be an Anglican clergyman. Um, his daughter died when she was 10. Okay, so that that that's hard to deal with for anybody. Um, he was struggling with what the church was teaching at the time being different than what he was seeing with his science and that was hard and he eventually stopped going to church. He would take his family to church, leave him at the door and he wouldn't go. And so um, that really had a big impact on him publishing and then him continuing to formulate his theories because basically what he did was he took God completely out of the picture. He still believed in God I think he was what we'd call a deist. He believed that God created the earth and then just left it to spin on its axis. And that purely natural causes then took over, evolution took over, and um, things came to be the way they are. So um, it's not that he didn't believe in God, but he didn't really believe in a caring God that would you know, intervene. <laughs> when did all of a sudden everyone just all of a sudden be like, oh my goodness, evolution, this is, this is what we should believe instead of the Bible? Because I feel like throughout history, the Bible was the law, <laughs> still is the law, but everybody believed it, and I feel like it would take something really... This was really a seminal moment in history because it really polarized people. This is when you became in a camp with the Bible, what the church was teaching, or in a camp with science. So it was still with Charles Darwin, it wasn't like after? Well, it was after, like, there was multiple people who started to see what he was teaching and study it. And actually there was another scientist by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace who simultaneously proposed natural selection. So there was a lot of people who started studying. Like, like I said, but from Plato's day to this mid-1700s, not much changed. And then all of a sudden, all these people started to kind of rock the boat with evolutionary thought. And so his Darwin's work really polarized people and started to put people into two camps. Because what Darwin did was he started to explain the world purely by natural causes. Science was the way to explain the world versus supernatural causes, right? That the Bible, that God was the way to explain the world. So you put people into this natural versus supernatural and scientists who could see the facts tended to fall into one camp or the other. Emily, did you have another question? So it's all based on my assumptions, okay? So if you assume that apes, humans came from apes, you have to allow for a really long time span for that to happen. And anybody would agree that that takes a long time to happen. Um, so if your assumption is a young earth, 
that doesn't allow time for that to happen, right? And if your assumption is a literal interpretation of Genesis, that God created man in his own image, it doesn't allow for that to happen. If your assumption is that God created beings and then we diversified from that and you have three and a half billion years ago, it allows time for that to happen. So it really is a difference in assumptions. Um, that's a good question. So, um, I don't know the answer to that, but people would look at Australopithecines, right, and the bodies that they uncover, the fossils that they uncover and stuff like that, and we don't know. We can only make inferences about whether we could mate with an Australopithecine, right, but they're a different species. Um, so they've been defined as a different species, but there is no... You, you can never answer that question as whether we truly could mate or whether two different species, right? But there are fossils yeah. of different species of humanoid forms. So to answer your question, yes, humans have evolved microevolutionary, right? Microevolution, humans have the average height of human beings has shifted over time. We moved from shorter to taller. That's microevolution. So humans... Homo sapiens have gone through microevolution. Macroevolutionary events, I don't know. Right? I don't know. But the Bible would suggest that if we were made in God's image, that, that they would be two different forms. That's a tough question. Other questions? I don't know what we're, I have no idea what time it is. Okay, we're running out of time. But anyway, um, I've already talked about, oh, sorry. Common misconceptions, some of these things that you might have heard. Um, if you believe in evolution, you can't be a Christian. I'm standing here today as a Christian who I've told you I believe in evolution. But again, I always think it's important to define what are we talking about when we're talking about evolution. I will say I believe in microevolution. I'll say I believe in macroevolution. But I draw the line at um, an evolutionary history of the earth. So, um, no. This is not true. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution. Um, evolution is a theory about the origin of life. This is not true either, okay? Evolution, in order to act, there had to be a living being to begin with. Something, right? Whether it was a single-celled organism or some other form, there has to be something to act on. And so this is not about where did life, how did life originate. It's about how did life change, right? Um... Another misconception, evolution means the same thing to all people. I think I've addressed that when you're talking about evolution. We are all talking about different things, and we need to define that. And so microevolution is different than macroevolution, is different from the concept that people descended from apes, is different from the idea that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. There's a misconception that evolution results in progress, that we're moving towards some ideal form. And that's not true. Evolution is random. And um, it acts, it's a mechanism for adaptation to the environment because our environment is constantly changing. Forms are constantly changing. It's not this escalator moving towards a perfect form, but we're constantly in flux as populations adapt to their environment. Misconception that individuals evolve. I don't evolve. 
okay? Individuals don't evolve. Populations of organisms evolve, not in their lifetime, but over generations. So people don't evolve. Individuals don't evolve, but groups of organisms evolve. There's a misconception that evolution only occurs slowly and gradually, right? Um, in some instances, yes, it takes a long time for evolution to occur, but it's not the only um, theory. So there's, just briefly, um, the gradualistic model is that there's these slow genetic changes occurring over time that slowly separate two species. But there's also this idea of punctuated equilibrium, going back to mutations. You can have one mutation that makes a very dramatic change from one generation to the next, and that can immediately result in a new species within a generation. And they've actually done studies to show that evolution can occur in as little as eight generations. If you're talking about fruit flies, that a generation is two weeks, within two months you can have a new species of fruit fly. Okay, so evolution doesn't necessarily, not even speciation, doesn't necessarily have to take billions of years. Um, there can be these really abrupt changes that can result in a new species forming. And then the last misconception is that humans cannot influence evolution. We very much have influenced evolution. Um, going back to the dogs, right? This is evolution. We've bred for all these different characteristics. It's microevolution. Dogs are still dogs, um, but we have influenced evolution. We've domesticated crops. We've domesticated animals. We've created new species. Okay, so humans have very much influenced evolution in the course of evolution. Why are creation and evolution so often juxtaposed? I mean, you've probably seen the Jesus symbol with the fish, right, of course, and then the Darwin symbol where they've added legs to the fish and put Darwin's name in there, and they've butted these two up, right, because this idea that Darwin's publications really polarized readers, it put them in two different camps. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that there are some aspects of Darwinian evolution that are compatible with the Christian faith. So um, I don't think they need to be so juxtaposed. You don't have to be in these two distinct camps, but there's a way to think about these concepts that, that works. I like this, I ran into this cartoon. So again, going back to this idea of, some, of assumptions, creations versus creation versus evolution. We have the same hardware, right? We're all people, but we have different operating systems. So what are your assumptions? If your assumptions are rooted in the Holy Bible, you're going to think differently about um, any evidence that you see. What does it support? If your assumptions are purely in science and Darwinian evolution, you're going to think differently. Um, you can look at the same piece of evidence and think that it supports two different things. So we have different assumptions. And I've already really answered this question, is evolution compatible with the Bible and the literal interpretation of Genesis? Um, some aspects, some, some aspects are and some aspects aren't, so. And can Christians be scientists? Yes, I've answered that one too. So I kind of blew through those last ones because I've already answered them, but um, science is a gift from God. He made us to be, to be, um, to have human reason. He gave us the world to study, to get to know him better, and um, it's a gift from him. So we can learn more about him by studying science and 
Um, so Christians can be scientists, but it's like, I think that's a common misconception that Christians can't be scientists. So what other questions do you guys have? Yeah. Uh, I'm a nursing student, so coming from that perspective and like humans, I feel like survival of the fittest or like natural selection, faster, faster going to survive. When you look at like genetic mutations and such like that, I feel like we've almost screwed ourselves over as a species by technology and like changing the environment. Because if you look back how many years ago, we were living to hundreds of years old with n not as many diseases as we have these days. And now we have, I mean, I don't think, I'd say like one out of 10 people actually die of like old age, if not even that many. Like, so uh, do you think that we as a, our own species have kind of screwed ourselves over with this whole microevolution and changing the environment? Or do you think that we, I mean, this is the genetic mutations are gonna happen regardless, and that this has just come about after how many years? So natural selection really is mother nature's answer to this. But like I said, humans have messed with evolution because we, no, mother nature isn't deciding what reproduces, right? We have other technologies that have intervened in that. So, so yes, it's changed the course of evolution, good or bad, it's changed the course of evolution. Um, I don't know if I answered your so question. Like, wouldn't have taught, like, if we had never really gotten into medicine and would have just let it run its course, do you think we would <laughs> be living longer or like be, do, being better, doing better as a species without all these genetic, like you have so many autoimmune diseases and things like that, that I mean, you have diseases coming about from environmental stuff, that every like pollution in the air, stuff like that, like people are dying from things that we did to ourselves and maybe we shouldn't have messed with it in the first place. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, technology is a gift from God that can be used for good as well. So it's just that we're a sinful world and we've misused the technologies that we have and we haven't taken care of the earth that God gave us. I mean, he, he char charged us, right, with taking care of God, with his creation. So we haven't really done the best job because we're sinful beings. So um, who's to say the trajectory we would have gone on had we not messed with all that stuff? But that's fun to speculate on, right? Other questions, yeah. Um, so in the theology world, we talk a lot about defining terms as well because terms can really be misunderstood. So if I stand in the pulpit as a pastor and say, yeah, I believe in evolution, <laughs> I would say, you know, that's a huge buzzword. And I would say 99% of the people would understand that as the history. Yes, was. yeah, that's the problem. So I have no problem with the micro-macro evolution. I that makes total sense to me. How do I say that though? So that I'm, so that I'm not, it's, I mean, it's such a buzzword. No, it's funny that you said that. When I took Bible information class to join the Lutheran church, um, the pastor was going through Genesis and he was really adamant that Darwin was wrong and we can't believe in Darwin. And I was having a really hard time with that, you know, joining the Lutheran church and I'm like, okay, wait a second. And I raised my hand. I said, you know, a lot of what Darwin proposed is spot on and there are parts of evolution that are really consistent with biblical teachings. And he was kind of shocked. <laughs> it was kind of like, 
are we going to let this person join the church if they believe in evolution? So it's tough. You have to be very clear about, that's why I always start with definitions. Like, what is it I'm talking about? So I think it's just important to make it clear that if you truly understand the theory, there are parts of evolution that don't contradict the Bible, but then there are parts that if you extrapolate, do. And really the difference is, um, again, going back to the assumptions that science can't test supernatural. We can never use science to prove the Bible. We should never try. You should never try to use science to prove the Bible because we can't do it because Bible deals with supernatural and science deals with natural stuff and we can only use science to test natural things. So they're two different realms when we come to trying to, we don't prove anything in science anyway, but you just have to be really clear like, don't answer that question. Do you believe in evolution? Like, you, you ask a political candidate, do you, do you believe in evolution? I'm like, don't answer it. What are, you, what are you asking? So you really have to be clear about what it is you're talking about. So it's not easy to, to have that conversation. So other questions? Yeah, Arthur. Can we use the Bible to explain science then? Uh, I mean, if we can't do it the other way, it would make sense that it would have worked to use the Bible to explain science. The problem is, again, assumptions, right? Um, you have two, if you're, so science is based on assumptions, and if you have two different assumptions, a belief in supernatural, it's, it's hard, it's hard to do that. Um, but like I said, like, you can look at the same piece of evidence and say from a perspective of your assumptions are in the Bible, you can, you can have one, um, explanation of it but if your assumptions are in purely natural causes you have a different explanation on it so it's that it's really hard to convince somebody who doesn't have your same assumptions right so you can but it often draws ridicule because they're basing their decisions on different assumptions so, so no harmony between them, i don't think that there's not harmony for me i've I've found some measure of harmony of what I can, how I can mesh these two ideas. So I don't think that there's not harmony, but you have to be comfortable with what your assumptions are and that you're okay with making those assumptions. That you have to have a pretty strong faith in what, what, how you're interpreting Genesis. Um, and then you kind of have to shrug off some things, I think, as well in the scientific community. And you have to say, well, I, you know, I have different beliefs about that and you have to be able to shrug off some of that so I don't know I, I take a lot of um, comfort in Job Job says there are things too wonderful for us to know and that we just don't know the answers now and we're not going to till we die so um, I, I take I you know I think that's really important to remember that I, I think that's the problem with a lot of people they think they know science and they are so smart and know all this stuff but they forget that there's so many things that we don't know and we can never know so if you're if you're humble and you understand that, then you're able to shrug off some of those things that don't mesh and that you can never make mesh. So, other questions? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's all thank Dr. Phillips for coming.